The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, your climate-focused podcast produced by the team at RepublicEN.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson. Welcome to our 60th episode, 60 episodes. Listeners, today's guest came via the Ask Bob Anything feature we have been promoting. One of our listeners asked for an episode about nuclear energy, and lo and behold, another listener recommended today's guest on that very subject. Stephen Nesbitt, president of the American Nuclear Society, had a long and distinguished career with Duke Energy Corporation, where he performed safety analyses in support of nuclear power plants. Between 1996 and 2005, he led Duke Energy's efforts related to the use of mixed oxide fuel in its nuclear power reactors as part of the U.S. Department of Energy project to dispose of surplus plutonium from nuclear weapons. He also managed nuclear fuel activities for Duke Energy. For nine years prior to retirement, he was responsible for developing the company's policy positions related to nuclear power and interacting with industry and government groups on used fuel management and related issues. In addition to nuclear utility activities, during his career, Steve worked on several DOE projects, including the New Production Reactor Project, the Yucca Mountain Spent Nuclear Fuel Disposal Project, and the Centralized Interim Storage Facility Project. He supported the U.S. Department of State on outreach to countries with developing nuclear power programs. He also served on the International Panel of Experts for the Nuclear Threat Initiative's 2016, 2018, and 2020 Nuclear Security Index reports. As you will hear, and as you just heard, he has decades of experience and expertise, and we really just cover a little bit of everything in this episode, so I promise if you have questions about specific topics you heard us touch on, please let me know. I am committed to having him back. So now my conversation with Stephen Nesbitt. Listeners, welcome back. As promised, I believe that um, Steve Nesbitt is our first guest that came directly from a listener comment. So listeners, you were asking us for somebody who could talk about nuclear energy, and we found the guy. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Chelsea. I'm very glad to be here. So I thought that we could start off by talking about the American Nuclear Society, um, what this organization is, who its members are, and um, what the mission of the organization is for those listeners who don't know. I'd be glad to do that. Uh, So just think uh, American Medical Association or American Bar Association, and, and we're that except for nuclear professionals, folks who work with nuclear technology. Um, that's not uh, that's not just constrained to people who work in or in support of nuclear power plants, but nuclear technology affects our lives in many different ways and medical fields, industrial applications, things of that nature. So um, anyone who works in the field is welcome. We have around 10,000 members. 
Um, we do what you would, I guess, be a typical professional society, support members in terms of education and training and opportunities and also interact with uh, uh, government agencies and things like that on behalf of the nuclear technology field. Our goal, our vision is to, uh, is to share nuclear technology with folks to make sure they understand the benefits that arise from it and just uh, um, make sure that the uh, um, that, that, that folks understand the um, what nuclear technology brings and the many different ways that it affects folks in their lives today. And your specific expertise is in nuclear energy, so a long career spent at Duke Energy. Um, and as climate advocates, we are interested in nuclear energy as a zero carbon um, fuel source. So I thought that you could talk a little bit to our listeners. You know, I think that um, today it feel nuclear energy feels like a polarizing topic, maybe even more polarizing than climate change itself. So, you know, obviously I think you, with your background on the safety side, especially probably have something to say about um, some of the controversies and maybe um, misconceptions around nuclear energy. Sure, I'd be glad to try to address them. Uh, first of all, I guess I would say I, I want to point out that nuclear energy fits into the array of choices that's available for low carbon generation. Um, if you look at the net life cycle generation of hydrogen per megawatt of electricity generated, for example, um, what you find is that nuclear energy solar energy, wind energy, they're all very, very low. You might say, well, why aren't they zero? Well, if you, if you run a nuclear power plant, you're not burning fossil fuels, so you're not emitting carbon dioxide. However, in the process of building the plant itself, uh, pouring concrete, making steel, things like that. Of course, carbon is used and makes its way into the atmosphere. And similarly with solar cells or wind windmills and things like that, the same thing happens. But um, solar, wind, and, and nuclear are all very low. So from a carbon generation perspective, they're all great choices as we try to work our way into a, a clean, no carbon future. Uh, of course, nuclear power has been around for a long time uh, and it has its detractors out there. Um, what I can say about that is, is that nuclear energy has uh, consistently shown that it is among the safest ways of generating electricity that you've got. Of course, there is, um, there's no such thing as a, as a technological activity that has zero risk associated with it. But nuclear energy has a great safety record. If you look in the United States, for example, you know, we have been, we've been running nuclear power plants since the 1950s and people, no one has been hurt due to emissions of radiation from nuclear power plants, either in normal operation or in accidents. So. Well, and I think that's a, I would just interrupt you to say that with um, Three Mile Island, which is probably what most people sort of the knee jerk reaction is when they think about nuclear energy, there was the, what ha, the systems that were supposed to happen happened in that case, correct? 
Well, um, there were there were problems, and uh, but ultimately the containment system that's built around the reactor enclosed the release of radionuclides and prevented large scale releases that would harm people in the in the area. And it was, uh, of course, that happened in 1979, and that was a a wake up call for the nuclear industry. We learned so much from that event. Um, our plants today are amazing, amazing uh, technological uh, wonders, if you will. They run basically around the clock and around the calendar for 18 months or 24 months at a time. They generate electricity at night uh, when the wind's not blowing, which is one of the attractive features that nuclear energy has going for it relative to some of the intermittent clean energy sources that are out there. But uh, uh, and, and I like to say that, that nuclear power is both old and new in that we have these 93 nuclear power plants here in the United States that we run and run very well and run very safely. But around the corner, uh, the, the technology has not stood still. We're looking at new designs for nuclear reactors. Um, small modular reactors is one of those. And I can talk about that a little bit more. And also advanced reactors, which are um, significant departures from the current light water reactor technology that we're familiar with. And these new technologies offer exciting benefits in terms of um, safety, in terms of efficiency, in terms of ability to do jobs beyond just generating electricity, but also some industrial applications like process steam or making hydrogen and things of that nature. Well, since you brought up small modular reactors, I thought um, this seems like a good point to have you explain to our listeners what that is. And we've had a few guests mention them before, but not really explain what they are and how they contrast with the um, light water reactors that are currently in commission, I guess we should say. Yeah, that's that's a it's a great question. And if you look at the history of nuclear power plants, what's happened is that over the time of the 1950s and 1960s, and 1970s and 1980s, they got bigger and bigger because there was economies of scale associated with making one plant that generated a lot of electricity in one fell swoop. And, uh, and that was a benefit in many ways. But what we've come to realize is that maybe smaller is better in a number of different uh, applications. So for example, um, small modular reactors take advantage of the fact that the physical size of the reactor and the plant is smaller. And instead of having to have a big construction project for many, many years at a site in order to build a reactor, you can build the reactor and key components in a, um, in a factory and then ship it to the site depending on the particular design of, of that reactor. Um, because they're smaller, they take advantage of what we call inherent and passive safety features. So with today's plants, we rely on um, electrically powered pumps and valves and things like that to provide for cooling in the unlikely event we have a problem with the plant. Um, with the many of the small modular reactor concepts, with the inherent and passive safety features, they don't need any of that, what we call active safety features. They have passive features, natural circulation, cooling, and things of that nature that 
basically is uh, they just sit there and and uh, and, and watch it, and uh, um, the plant shuts itself down, and, and all is well. So um, so there's some advantages in the smaller size as well as uh, you know advantages in the bigger size. But the uh, um, there's a lot of interest in small modular reactors in the United States now. Um, a couple of other advantages are because they're smaller, they don't cost as much in one fell swoop. And uh, also, if you're adding in electricity into your system, you might be able to put a small modular reactor or a number of them because you can add the number that you need to get to the generation you want to a site that uh, a, a coal plant that was shut down, for example, might might be a great site for a small modular reactor. Um, and and the electricity connections are already there. You can you can use the people who are already um, expert and skilled in many of the trades that you need to run a reactor, but you know maybe we're working at the coal facility and, and retrain them to be uh, part of the, the new clean energy future there. So there's a lot of advantages, potential advantages to small modular reactors, and we're hoping they come to fruition. Would you need different um, permits? And um, I presume there's some process that you couldn't just as a utility say, we're shutting down this coal-fired power plant and we've already ordered our small modular reactors, they'll be (laughs) delivered in two days or whatever. Um, You probably have to go through some processes and I'm assuming that's where things get mucked up a little bit. Well, it's a, yeah, it's in the United States, the uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission has licensing authority over all uh, uses of radioactive materials and so not just reactors, but um, the medical x-ray machine in, in the doctor's office and things like that. So um, the uh, what we're doing, actually, it's some exciting work that I'm involved in. We're working with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to kind of retool their rules and regulations for the coming reactors, the small modular reactors, the advanced reactors, because they have a whole setup of what we call a licensing framework that's that's um, focused on these large light water reactors that we've been running for so many decades. But now we're, we're kind of throwing them a curveball. But to the NRC's credit, they're working with industry in order to put a licensing framework in place that is uh, able to uh, adjust flexibly to to the new reactors. And uh, hopefully the whole licensing process will go smoothly and will certainly retain the same high level of safety that we've always had with nuclear power in the US. Um, So if if we could just talk a little bit, because everything that you're saying about the sort of technology and the advancements and wave of the future, sounds super exciting to me. I feel like I had read, and and it could be dated material, but that one of the um, consequences of the anti-nuke movement after Three Mile Island was that the universities weren't, I don't remember if it's that they weren't um, offering as many advanced degrees in the nuclear sciences, I'll say, so engineering or whatever um, um, uh, specialty that you wanted to look into, or um, whether it, so are the programs shrinking or was the interest shrinking? But it sounds to me like 
we're good. We've got innovators out there and um, hopefully a fresh crop of uh, a new generation of experts who can kind of take us into the next few decades as we try to curb our carbon emissions. We're never exactly where we want to be, right? But uh, mm-hmm. I, th- I think we're doing pretty good from the education and training perspective. Nuclear engineering curriculums took a hit in the 1990s, and uh, uh, a number of them shut down. In fact, I attended the University of Virginia and got two nuclear engineering degrees there, but they no longer offer nuclear engineering at, at the University of Virginia. However, uh, around the year 2000, there was an upswing and a number of programs came into being that hadn't existed before as the prospects for nuclear uh, power brightened with uh, extension of lifetime for currently operating plants, plus the potential for new plants. So today we have uh, we have a lot of uh, young people who are very interested in the field. And I mentioned before the uh, sort of the innovative side of things, not just with uh, with small modular reactors, but actually with what we call advanced reactors. We're looking at new reactor types that are they use different coolants than uh, the current reactors, like uh, we've always used water-cooled reactors since the 1950s, mainly because uh, that's the approach that the U.S. Navy took with their propulsion programs. But now we're looking at some other kinds of coolant that offer some real advantages in terms of being able to deal with higher temperatures and operating at lower pressures and things like that. So on the drawing boards, they have gas-cooled reactors, they have molten salt-cooled reactors, they have liquid metal-cooled reactors. And uh, a couple of those are actually involved in um, a demonstration program that's being uh, executed cooperatively between industry and the Department of Energy right now. I'm not sure how water intensive those cooling reactors are, but would what you were just describing for advanced reactors be beneficial in places that are experiencing extreme drought right now? Well, it, uh, it it can be, and uh, and there's uh, there's all sorts of technologies for addressing. Um, minimizing the use of, of uh, cooling water. For example, uh, I believe that um, some of the small modular reactor companies actually have uh, dry cooling uh, towers associated with their design or an option for that. So if you are in a very arid environment and you don't have the water to replace what gets evaporated in a traditional wet cooling tower, you could use a dry cooling tower. You take a hit with the uh, Uh, electrical efficiency a little bit, but you can still operate the reactor. We're energy optimists and climate realists. Stand with us at republicen.org. Now back to this week's episode. So let's talk about the W word, waste. I feel like that is another one of those issues. So, you you know, you have the perceived um, conceptions around safety, and then I think waste disposal is the other big issue that you hear from people who are against um, nuclear energy. So, you know, what you're telling me is that we're, we're seeing this evolution, right? We're seeing an evolution in the, the size and the technological capabilities of these reactors. So has there been the same level of progress on the waste side? I wish I could say yes, but uh, in this country, <laughs> I'm going to have to say no. Um, so let me, let me, 
mention a couple of things that we've done very well with nuclear waste here in this country. Um, first of all, uh, there's a relatively small amount of nuclear waste. Nuclear waste is primarily, it's the spent fuel that's left over after uranium fuel assembly is most of the uranium that's usable in it has been split and released energy. And what's left over there are the um, what we call fission products or the atoms that are split off every time you split a uranium atom. And unfortunately, they're very radioactive. And some of those radioactive atoms stick around for hundreds or thousands of years. And we have to uh, deal with them to make sure that uh, we don't have people exposed to those high level of levels of radiation. But the good news is it's a really small amount. So if you took a football field and you filled it up about 10 feet high with used fuel assemblies, that would be the amount of uh, radioactive used fuel that we've generated in the U.S. since we started making electricity by splitting the atom back in 1957. Wow. And w- when you consider there's, you know, there's been like, for most of those years, there's been about 100 nuclear plants operating in the country. That's, that's not that big of a volume to deal with. Um, another piece of good news is the nuclear industry has always stored the material safely. That's what we that's what is done with it now. The material is stored on site first in spent fuel pools, which are just um, pools full of water that shields uh, and cools the, the, the fuel after it comes out of the reactor when it's hottest. After it cools down a little bit, we transfer it into what we call dry storage, which are just... Um, thick concrete and steel containers and the fuel assemblies are contained inside of those in an inert atmosphere. There's no active cooling required. They just sit out on the yard outside the reactor facility and uh, natural convection cools them and the canisters shield them, shield shield the, the workers from the radiation that's given off. Ultimately, the plan is to take that material and Uh, put it in the ground somewhere in what we call a geologic repository, a stable geologic formation, so that the remaining radioactivity, most of it's already decayed off, but the remaining radioactivity will continue to decay until it's no longer harmful to folks. And uh, some countries around the world are making good progress in that area. Um, Finland is constructing a repository. Uh, Sweden is coming close to being able to say the same thing. Canada is evaluating a couple of potential sites for their geologic repository for high-level waste. In the U.S., we thought we had one. It was Yucca Mountain in Nevada. Um, But that uh, hit the political wicket, and uh, that one has gone nowhere for the last 12 years or so, and it doesn't look like it's going anywhere soon. So um, there's a statement that goes around. It's kind of a truism, but it's also true. The problem with nuclear waste isn't isn't technical. It's political. We know what to do with it, but we need the political will to make something happen. The good news is that until we get to that point where our politicians are ready to deal with uh, existing issues like nuclear waste uh, and uh, we can store the material safely on site, We've done it for many decades and we can do it as long as it takes uh, um, in the future. So would you say that the waste storage is the biggest obstacle or are there other obstacles to getting these small modular reactors um, in a more, you know, used more commercially? 
Yeah, I, I think it's I don't think it's the biggest obstacle, Chelsea, actually. I think that it's important because it does, um, uh, you know, in the in the eyes of the public, you know, they would like to see some real progress being made in that area. And so, so would I. And uh, I think I'm hopeful that um, we will get uh, we will get the politicians in line and start doing that. But I think the biggest challenge for the nuclear industry is to demonstrate that these great new mousetraps that we talk about all the time, these advanced reactors, these small modular reactors actually um, work the way that we say that they're going to work and we can build them on a reasonable schedule and budget. And there's a program that's in place right now. It's called the Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program. It's a cost share between industry and the federal government, the Office of Nuclear Energy within the Department of Energy to take a couple of those advanced reactor concepts and have them up and running by the year 2027. Which is and around the corner. <laughs> it is not that far off, is it? I noticed that. I do my Christmas shopping yet, you know? And uh, <laughs> but that's what I want for Christmas is to, to see those, uh, those, those projects go forward and, and come in on time or roughly on time. And I think that uh, that's a demonstration that, that nuclear energy can actually play its place in our clean energy future. So I just have one other question because I saw it in your bio and I worked on this issue many years ago, very, very briefly, but the mixed oxide program where, and you're going to have, again, I know just a little to be so wrong, but you were taking spent fuel, right? And then trying to recycle it, for lack of a better word, for use, for energetic use. That's and correct. That program um, was controversial, it seems, from a few different perspectives, but it seemed the cost overruns were kind of a uh, maybe the final nail in the coffin on that. And as somebody that used to work on Capitol Hill and do um, appropriations for big cost projects, one thing that I always thought fr found frustrating was if you have a $100 million project and it's getting you know, $500,000 or $500, of appropriations every year, you can do the math on how long it's going to take for that project to be complete. So I think maybe part of it wasn't Mox's fault, right? Maybe they just weren't getting the funds they needed at the pace they needed to to make progress. And then as we know, anytime, you know, even if you're doing a kitchen reno, um, when things slow down, costs can go up. And anyway, I'm going to let you speak about that because in concept, it seems like a really great idea. Let's take spent fuel and let's recycle, you know, we're all RRR, reuse, reuse, recycle. So why has, haven't we, we been able to get this moving here in the U.S.? Well, that's a great question, and I could I could go on for hours about it, but I'll have pity on you and not do that. Uh, I will say that um, recycling used fuel is done on a routine basis um, in France, and it's been done in other countries overseas. Russia is also recycling um, used fuel. It's a proven technology, and uh, uh, it sounds good, but it's it's also kind of like recycling plastic bottles, for example, you know, sometimes it costs more to recycle it than it does to just throw it away. And so depending on the price of uranium and things like that, the economics don't always work out for that. But as far as the project in the U.S. was concerned, the goal there was to take existing plutonium from nuclear weapons that we didn't need anymore and uh, dispose of it while the Russians did likewise with their material. And, and I, I felt privileged 
actually to be associated with the project for for nine years, and we we did make some really good progress. We took some uh, U.S. weapons material, we uh, converted it into reactor fuel in France, and used it in reactors in South Carolina, and uh, proved that. It would work fine. Unfortunately, as you point out, the uh, the economics of the facility that would actually convert the the uh, the nuclear weapons into fuel turned out to be uh, uh, too expensive for the taste of, uh, of DOE and lawmakers, and so they they went down another path. But uh, I will add that uh, um, there's all sorts of different kinds of recycling of fuel, and some of these advanced reactor concepts that we're talking talking about molten salt reactors, in particular liquid sodium fast reactors, are especially amenable to um, doing that recycling. And so we are hopeful that as we deploy more of those reactors, we'll be able to do more of that three R's approach and not just throw it away in a hole in the ground. But that's just one of the one of the things that we're, we're hoping that we will uh, we will see in the in the next decade or so. Well, I feel like we could probably talk for two more hours and still be in this state of very um, general information. And I'm 100% sure that I'm going to get follow-up questions from listeners. I would love to have you back now that we've had this kind of um, intro conversation as I get feedback from listeners and hear their questions. I think it would be wonderful to um, find other ways to have your voice and, you know, maybe we specify, um, the, the topic a little bit more next time, because again, there's just so much that we could talk about, but I feel like we got a good, you know, we got made a good start. We got some history, we have some politics, we had, um, talked about the technology a little, and I'm just so grateful that you came on the show with such quick notice and I'm definitely going to count on you as a resource in the future, if you don't mind. Uh, thank you, Chelsea, for having me on. I'd be glad to. Uh, I'd be glad to expound on my favorite subject as long as anybody can bear to listen. Price, we did it again. Here we are, episode six zero. Can you believe it? Wow, sixty! I didn't even. Yeah, know. Okay. I counted. I counted. You're following, counting round square numbers, 60. Uh, wow. 60. We've been through a lot, a lot of guests and a lot more to come this year. We got, uh, you know, somebody on, we, we had a request, uh, you know, regarding nuclear power and we delivered. So well done, Chelsea. And especially thank you, Steve Nesbitt. Yeah, he was such a wealth of knowledge. And one thing that I really appreciated is that he could talk about, I think it's a special somebody or a special skill set to know so much about an issue. And to be able to talk about it in a way that is makes it understandable for somebody who might not know as much as you, and then to do that in a way that is not condescending. And so he totally achieved that. I felt like I learned something. I did not feel like he was rolling his eyes if I asked a question. And he told me after he thought I asked the right questions, which is was a nice compliment. So I really enjoyed that. And I was serious when I told him I wanted to have him back listeners, if you have, you know, more, we kind of went an inch deep, right? But we can go deeper. He obviously knows a lot. So if there is more specific information, 
about nuclear energy that you want us to get into for season four, definitely reach out and we can have them back, even if it's just for a quick five minute update, you know, ask, not ask Bob anything, but maybe ask Steve a nuke question. <laughs> yeah. And, then, and on that note, we will not have a new Ask Bob anything this week. Wanted to take the time instead of doing that, Chelsea, to put out the call again. We want your questions. You can go to Apple Podcasts, give us a review, and where it says write a comment, leave a comment, put your question in right there. Anything you want to know, anything you want to ask, it doesn't even it, it doesn't even have to be to Bob. It could be to one of us. But right. if there's anything burning, pressing, you know, regarding reconciliation, events, Bob's time in Congress, putting this podcast together. Whatever it, whether it's you know look, how to look for a job in the energy and climate field. I mean, my goodness, there are just a multitude of options that you. I mean, you could go it, you could go many different ways. So, Apple Podcast, where you go to write a review, and then where it asks for a question or a comment, that's where you put your question. Yep, go for it. Do it. Just ask that burning question, and like Price just said, it doesn't have to be ask Bob anything. It could be. Ask Price anything. Ask mm -hmm. Chelsea anything. So don't feel limited. <laughs> Biggest thing is we want to hear from you. And even if that's a that's also a great place to leave feedback, if there's something, a guest you want to hear, um, you know, that's where we got some feedback on having um, some, uh, somebody with background nuclear power. So, you know, we took that advice to heart and we went and found somebody. So that's right. Um, that, that is a very valuable resource to us because your feedback and your interaction and your engagement with us help drive the podcast, help you know make it better, help us deliver what you guys want as listeners because the podca podcast is all about you all, our listeners. We try and deliver for you on a weekly basis, and I can say from my standpoint, Chelsea Anderson certainly does that every single week, folks. Oh, thanks, Price. But you know what? Price has the hard part. He takes all the audio that I send his way, and he just makes it sound so seamless. So thank you, Price. That's the Love easy fest. part. Love That's bomb. the easy part. <laughs> um, real quickly, before we um, get out of here and certainly put out our call, um, you know, to join us, stand with us, that we do every single week. Um, and if you want to do that, please, we would love to have you stand with us at republican.org forward slash join. It just takes mere seconds. And you can be some of the new folks that join us like this past week. We've already had many people and like to shout them out. Ronald W. in Kentucky, Philip T. North Carolina, Bill Beverly T. in Wyoming, Marty B. in Texas, Laura D. in California. We will shout you out on the podcast. We pick a handful of new members every single week to shout out and thank for standing with us. And it's really simple. Again, republican.org forward slash join. You get weekend review. Uh, that Chelsea sends out every week, kind of a, a news capsule of what happened that week on the eco-right and in the climate energy space. Um, we send out poll questions. We send out, uh, we have webinars quarterly. There's a lot of things we do, but we don't override and spam your inbox. Right. There's we, no daily email from us or, no. you know, <laughs> hourly. I feel like sometimes I sign up for something and they're just constantly sending me, you know, that little drip campaign. We do not do that. So, yeah. Um, sign up. It's all about information and feeling like you're part of a community, which I think we do well. Yes, 100%. So I had a question because you get you usually ask all the questions. I wanted to ask one of you this sure. week. So, you know, being a, a former Senate staffer, you remind mm -hmm. us that often. And 
time I, I like to kid you about that um time this week where we new york times coral davenport and their team reported on um you know things going on in the senate reconciliation infrastructure all the different things that are happening but with joe manchin seemingly holding a lot of things up on that mm-hmm. side of the capitol that the story broke about well Senators now thinking about possibly going down the avenue of a carbon tax, and certainly everybody listening to this podcast, if you've listened to more than a couple of episodes, you know that that is the policy prescription that certainly in our that is in our wheelhouse that we would prefer in terms of a, a free enterprise, border adjustable, revenue neutral carbon tax. Um, what do you think? I mean, is it is it posturing? Is it threat do you think it's real you know some of the quotes you read say you know i think ron wyden saying well i've had this in my back pocket a while i've got house members on that side that are ready to move if we do send them something in this form yeah i mean i obviously think that if that is if a carbon tax was going to move through the senate there would have to be republican support behind it and We've seen Mitt Romney consistently for the last few years say that he thinks a price on carbon is the way to go while he has not endorsed a a particular approach. He's seemed to express some some belief that that is the the path that we need to be on. And even Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, who has been reluctant to talk about a price on carbon, given the oil and gas community in her state, has said she thinks that's the way to go. Um, and, you know, a handful of others. So I think what it comes down to price is whether the package that is on the table becomes, you know, right now is it's partisan. So that's why they need Joe Manchin, mm-hmm. right? Because they're counting on all 50 Democrats to be there to vote for the thing. But I don't see how Joe Manchin supports a carbon tax if he's not supporting the other things that were, you know, if he has an objection to the other climate policy components of that package, then why they think the one, the approach that is the most radical, so to speak, because it involves the T word tax, even Mm -hmm. though, you know, depending on how you do it, the tax doesn't have to be a tax on the American people, right? It's a tax on the emissions. And yes, Oil companies could pass those costs down to consumers, but if you use the revenue in the right way, then consumers are buffeted from feeling the impacts of that. So I don't know. I think there is a lot of posturing happening right now. A 50-50 Senate is really, really hard to get anything done in. I was in the Senate during the the last time that it was 50-50. At that point, though, um, Vice President Cheney was the tiebreaker. And we were in a scenario like that for about seven months or eight months before Senator Jim Jeffords, the late Senator Jim Jeffords from Vermont, um, switched parties to um, tip the Senate in the favor of the Democrats. And, you know, that was a pretty big, dramatic thing that happened at the time. But I don't think we're headed down that path. I do think, though, that. You know, when you're the most powerful guy in Washington, you're going to go for broke. And I think that's what Joe Manchin is doing right now. Is it feels, you know, that what is the saying goes? It feels like, you know what, just got real. And, you know, it mm-hmm. just seems like it just kind of creeps a little bit closer into, you know, a, a possibility. Now, how that, that tax, that, you know, carbon tax might be crafted, obviously, 
the devil's in the details and that is a, you know, a non-starter, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, if it's a revenue raiser in, in really any kind of way, you know, on our end, because, yeah. you know, growth of government is not what we want to see. Right. Um, but it, it's just going to be interesting to see. I mean, obviously, this is going to move probably fairly quickly to um, there's not a lot of time left, you know, at least this yeah. year. So, yeah. you know, I think they're aiming. They want to get this thing done certainly sooner than later and with the debt ceiling and some other things that are looming. It's going to be a, uh, you know, is a, we always do it, a fight to the finish in the end Fight of the to the finish. It could be Christmas Eve and they could be in session. So let me just say I'm really glad I'm not working in the U.S. Senate right now. <laughs> All right. Let's get out of here. Any uh, tips right. in let our listeners know about next week? Well, you know, they're going to have to tune in to find out for sure. But I'm busily um, figuring out the programming for the rest of the season. We really only have like six episodes left. When we include the seven, if we include our season end wrap up, but with the holidays coming, you know, I'm looking ahead at the calendar and just trying to get everyone locked in as schedules get busy this time of year. So yeah, tune in to find out and um, we'll see you all next week. Working hard for you until then. We will see you all then. Thanks for listening. Spotify, Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, search eco right speaks on your favorite podcast platform Download, listen to subscribe us every single week. Chelsea, we'll see you next That's week. That's right. See you, Price. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast, brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco right leader.